Hello, welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. As always, I'm Matt Dwyer. That music you're listening to there is Les Blanks. Uh, so go to their website, lesblanks.com, and listen to more of their music, because they're pretty awesome. Today's episode is also pretty awesome. I'm having a conversation with Wayne Kramer from the MC5. Uh, he's done a lot of other things besides the MC5. He's played with Pierre Ubu, Was Not Was... He scores films and television shows like Eastbound and Down and Talladega Nights. And he also has a charity called Jail Guitar Doors. And you can go to jailguitardoors.org and check out more. They raise money to get musical instruments for people in jail. And tomorrow, July 12th, at the Echoplex, we're doing a charity concert, um, which I'm emceeing. It's being hosted by Adam McKay and Wayne Kramer. Uh, Adam McKay, who directed Talladega Nights among Anchorman. Uh, but in addition to my emceeing, uh, uh, Gilby Clark from Guns N' Roses is playing, Corey Parks from Nashville Pussy, Cody Marks, Zach Blair from Rise Against, Wayne will be playing, English Teeth are sort of the house band. Uh, I believe a couple other people are going to be showing up and, uh, jamming, as they say. It's going to be a great event. It's, uh, it starts at 8 o'clock at the Echoplex over there in, on Glendale. Uh, it's around $20, $22, depending on pre-advanced ticket stuff, but uh, it's going to be a great night of rock and roll, and all the money is going to go to guitar, jail guitar doors, uh, and uh, I'll, I'll be talking more about uh, the, the charity with Wayne Kramer is also uh, we're about to, which you're about to hear. We're also going to talk about uh, the MC5, the 70s, all kinds of crazy stuff. It's a really great episode. And uh, while you're listening, go to jailguitardoors.org and and watch some of the YouTube... Well, wait till my show's done. And then watch some of the YouTube videos. Uh, here's Wayne Kramer talking about Jail Guitar Doors and MC5. Thank you. Uh, and I am sitting in the office, office or studio of uh, Wayne Kramer. From uh, I've listed your credits before when you weren't here. I've recorded the intro, but uh, uh, MC Five is of course one of the big ones. And uh, and and uh, uh, would you call yourself a humanitarian with the charity event that is happening tomorrow night? That is part of humanitarian of? would be a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm struggling to get up to human. <laughs> Well, you, you, well, you're ahead of me. But uh, uh, tomorrow is, uh, which uh, I'm very honored to be emceeing, is a, a, a fundraiser for Jail Guitar Doors. Uh, and what? And that's you founded the United States version of that. Billy Bragg started the UK chapter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is it safe to say chapter? And uh, what? Ex- to explain that to exactly. Um, Jail Guitar Doors is a, a independent initiative. Uh, it's a 501c3 nonprofit corporation. Um, and we work to advance um, prisoner rehabilitation. Um, and because we're musician founded and musician operated for the most part, um, we find people that work in prisons that are willing to use music as a tool for rehabilitation and we donate guitars to them sometimes other instruments but mostly um acoustic guitars and sometimes you help start entire bands or did i misunderstand that we no no we we uh on special occasions we have um donated more equipment drum kits and and electric instruments uh, for prisons that have um 
uh, extensive music programs already up and rolling. Um, and we sometimes put on in-prison concert events. And we also, it's we have kind of a two-tiered um, approach. One is the things I just mentioned, you know, people helping people. Just We're just people and we're just helping other people that are happen to be in prison. Um, but we also have a um, political goal in mind. There has to be a political, um, a legislative goal that we're working towards, and that is uh, justice reform and in particular prison reform. You know, we have... Uh, 2% of the world's population, and we have 25% of the world's prisoners. Either we're the most evil people in the history of the world, or we're doing something wrong as as regards locking people up. I'd never heard that statistic before. That's, that's dumbfounding. It's staggering. We lock up people five times the rate of any Western uh, industrialized nation on Earth. We lock people up for longer sentences than have been known in history. And we lock up more of them. We have over two and a half million Americans in prison right now, another seven million under direct state control, probation, parole, supervision. God damn. How many, what do you know the percentage of them, of those prisoners that will never get out? Like what? Um, I'm going to guess, uh, I'm just guessing that it's probably around um, 2% or 3%. We know half of the people in prison are nonviolent drug offenders who, by all rights, um, have no business being in prison. These are people who get too high. That's their problem. I, now, I maybe they made some, <laughs> yes, <laughs> me, <laughs> here, I, um, they made some mistakes, no question. Um but um, they shouldn't be in prison. Prison should be the last resort, the last thing that you do. Um, and it should be reserved for um, the most serious offenses, you know, for people that are psychopathic, people that um, are so damaged that they can only relate to other human beings violently. Right. Uh, you know, to me, crime um, should be considered stealing or violence. And almost everything else is like regulations. <laughs> you just explained one of my good weekends. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and two, what you were saying, like, uh, with, I mean, a, a lot of, the, I don't know if a lot of the laws have changed, but there was a lot of laws in, during the Reagan administration about drug offenses that were really outlandish. And I know in, in New York, there was the Rockefeller, which was, I mean, like, people with hardly any drugs were going to prison for really long terms for like absurd even i guess my my uh my brother almost went to prison for a, like some coke deal that he he luckily got off on technicalities but i mean I, I knew several people who went to jail just for nickel diming drugs yeah it's I, i'm an ex-offender um i went to prison in in uh, the 70s and i went to prison right as the drug war was gearing up and I sold a pound and a half of cocaine to a federal agent. Um, the judge was allowed to determine my sentence. My sentence carried a 15-year maximum. 
and he decided to give me a four-year sentence. Um, today, if I did that same offense, um, the judge would have no control over it, and I would get a mandatory life sentence for the exact same offense. Wow. What, how did, now, what changed that sort of sentencing? Well, this is, it's going to take me a minute, but I'll, but I'll, I'll break it down for you. <laughs> I've got a minute. Okay. This is the wonders of the internet. That we, <laughs> we have no commercial interruptions. <clears throat> In the um, early 80s, uh, there was a ball player from the East Coast named Lem Bias, basketball player, college player. I think he played at uh, Maryland. And he was drafted number one or number two in the NBA draft. And he was a wonderful kid. They, everybody loved him. And all those politicos in D.C. follow basketball. And they loved this kid because he was a local kid. They followed his career. And he died of a cocaine overdose. He went out and he got too high to celebrate his, his uh, second round draft pick in the NBA draft. Got too high and he died. At the same time, um, crack was emerging in America's cities, and it was in the newspapers a lot. It'd be a real scandalous thing, you know, and crack babies and, and ghetto people in the ghetto smoking crack and crack violence. Crack, crack, crack. Oh my God, crack. There's crack under your bed. Crack's going to get your children. <laughs> crack's got grandma. It's crack. Crack's the enemy. So, Tip O'Neill who was a brilliant political strategist, realized that the Democrats could come out, they could win back control of the House um, by coming out tough on crack dealers, tough on crime. And so he put everybody, and they were all distraught about this Lambias death. So they're going to, this was a great, the window of opportunity opened politically. So he put all his staff on coming up with more severe uh, drug laws for the stop this crack epidemic. Um, in one month, they drafted legislation to make uh, possession of crack a serious federal crime, but they didn't know what a lot of crack was to make you a major narcotic. It was targeted at drug dealers, at major narcotics traffickers. So, they asked, they found a D.C. detective, a city detective who was famous for being an expert witness in drug cases. And they said, is 20 grams, uh, is that, does that make you a major narcotics trafficker? Does that make you a major dealer? And he said, oh, yeah, 20 grams, that, that, that would make you a major dealer. Um, as it turned out, this cop um, was uh, corrupt and ended up uh, on trial for perjury himself and brought a load of uh, letters uh, for the judge to letters of recommendation for his good character that he forged. Wow. And the judge found out about it and threw the book at this cop. Well, this is the guy that told the Senate staffers what a lot of coke was. So they thought, well, 20, 20 grams of crack cocaine, okay, that makes you a major narcotics trafficker. Nobody knew. We all know today 20 grams makes you a corner boy. <laughs> 20 tons makes you a major narcotics trafficker. But no, they didn't know that. They didn't know anything about crack. They didn't know anything about drug dealing. So they come out and they say, okay, we're going to give people 
a t- 10-year ma- mandatory sentence if they have 20 grams of crack. Well, naturally, the Republicans said, you're not tough enough because the Republicans got to be tougher. So, and, and then some of the Republican governors in small towns in America are saying, well, gee, we don't even know anyone that sells 20 grams. Could we lower that down to 10 grams so we can at least charge somebody with this new law? So they say, okay, we'll lower it down to 10 grams and we'll double the sentence to make it 20 years. So that's the law that gets passed. In the federal courts, you caught with 10 grams, it was worth 20 years. Mandatory minimum took, took the discretion away from the judges. So when the, when the feds passed this law, um, the states all followed suit. As you mentioned, the Rockefeller laws, um, these uh, uh, mandatory minimums all over America. And they really uh, started hammering um, people with small amounts of drugs, uh, corner dealers, nickel and dime people, people with small amounts of marijuana. Um, if you had a kilo or something, that made you a major narcotics trafficker. And they start giving away these, uh, these 10, 15, 20 life sentences, the most severe sentences in history. The only issue I have with that entire story is that you claim there was a cop who was dishonest. I'm kidding. <laughs> Cops are known to be great individuals. And they help the community. So that's, uh, I'm sorry, we disagree. <laughs> I don't know what happened. This guy, maybe his mother dropped him on his head when he was a little boy. But Probably. He was a policeman who lied. Ugh, I know it's hard, hard to hard, get hard. your head around I that. thought for a half second you believed me. <laughs> no, listen. Uh, I hate to be uh, Pollyannish, you know. <laughs> cops uh, scare the fuck, especially in L.A., more than anywhere. Chicago cops are awful and so are new york cops but there's something about la cops that put they i just see them because they're kind of buff and they'll fuck you up where chicago cops i've seen them where they're so fat that the thing that goes through the belt hole like was was the belt was on the last hole on the belt and the the metal thing that goes in the hole was sticking straight out like you couldn't get any fucking fatter (laughs) they're better now they used to be worse in uh in la la yeah in uh in the 60s and in the 70s in the um the uh, parker era and the gates era um la was an armed camp and the police ruled like the gestapo they were terrible after rodney king the the lapd backed off a little bit at least on the the kind of you know jaywalking and bullshit you know just you're walking down the street and they pull you over and and um and uh, they just moved. You. They just moved that over to Arizona. Yeah, for for, yeah. for a yeah. while. Yeah, which uh, I'm very very excited about what's going on. <laughs> uh, and, and now and so that, anyway, that's the story of how we got to these to these where severe we are. sentences. Yeah. Now, when you were selling to that FBI agent, did you know? Were you set up, or did you, or were you always kind? Of, were you kind of in a dealing mode, or was it? Because I have friends who were like set up and under other than the guys of like hey man do a quick deal for this amount you make some quick money yeah. and they ended up and it was a setup well i can't say that i wasn't doing wrong consciously i i was involved in um in a in a in a bizarro world where good was bad and bad was good um and i liked it i liked doing wrong and I like the idea of uh, of, uh, of being a, uh, an outsider, of being outside the 
the mainstream. I'd always seen myself as an outsider anyway, and uh, and uh, I found it was a way to get status. You know, there's a hierarchy in in the criminal underworld, and and uh, the heavier weight work that you did, the heavier your activities, the more status you gained. And um, but uh, that said. Um, the the fact of this case was that um, a guy approached me uh, looking for cocaine, and um, uh, he had a briefcase full of $100 bills. And I looked at all that money, and I said, let me make some calls for you here. Let me see if I can help you out. <laughs> I was out of work, um, uh, and they they made me an offer I couldn't refuse, and they made it easy. And as it turned out, the guy that brought me into contact with the agents was himself um, a known murderer, a dope house ripoff man who had just finished a prison sentence, got caught in a luxury car, stolen luxury car scam and um, made a deal with the feds that if he set me up, then he wouldn't have to go back to prison. That's the way they actually do things. That's they have a nail on the wall down there at the police station, <laughs> and they nail your ass on that on the wall. You can get down anytime you want. You just have to put somebody else's ass up there. That's exactly what happened to my friend in Chicago. The exact same. And, and then when he went to prison, for some reason, it, it was rumored in jail that he he flew the kite, as they said, on that guy. And which was not the case, but he got the fucking shit kicked out of him because they thought he was a, a rat, mm -hmm. and he wasn't. Mm -hmm. So that wouldn't be so good. Can can be very dangerous. People people get killed by accident all the time in in prisons. It's it's a horrific environment. What year was that 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 you got arrested for? I, I went down in seventy five, and I came up in seventy eight. What and the what and MC five disbanded in seventy two. Seventy two. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I've always wondered that when bands break up, because you're pretty young, like I'm, like I'm really worried about Meg White right now. Like, what is she doing? <laughs> it's like, but I'm like, there's so many bands that break up, and then you you got to be like kind of lost because for about ten years that was your life. Yeah, and then it's like now what? And is that was that a period of just absolute where you were lost? Yeah, because. Um, I was led to believe that talent was everything and talent isn't enough. <laughs> talent, you know, talent doesn't get you through when, um, when uh, you wake up one day and everything you've worked for is, is gone, you know, and your friends are gone, your way to make money is gone, your membership in the community is gone. Talent doesn't help you there. I mean, that's where you really need friends and you need, um, uh, ethical code of conduct to live by um, to get you through um, really challenging times. And I didn't have it. You know, I thought that I, I, I bought, I, I believe the hype. See, I thought if you were successful in show business, if I thought, I thought if I was recognized internationally as a, as a great artist, that I would be delivered to a good life. It's and, like being successful in showbiz is like reaching a state of nirvana. And those of the people who are listening who aren't in showbiz, you'll never know the bliss that we do. 
<laughs> we are whole, solid human beings. That's right. We have actually, it's better than it looks. Yeah. The pool, the beautiful dames, the big cars. Yeah, it's even better than that. My pool's filled with gray goose. <laughs> that's how, and that's that's like sixty bucks a bottle. So you fucking do the math, assholes at home who work in insurance companies. Yeah, if, yeah. if you believe that, then. <laughs> I've got some real estate I'd like to sell you. <laughs> yeah, I, I believed it. You know, I, I really thought that, it, you know, if I was successful, that I would, I would, I would become whole. And, uh, and, and then I was successful, and I wasn't whole, and then I wasn't successful anymore, and I really wasn't whole. You know, you got a plan. I had a plan. And the plan worked, and then I wasn't, not only was I not better, I was worse. And I see it all the time now here in, in Los Angeles. People come to Los Angeles, they've got a plan. They're going to be a hit. They're going to have a hit screenplay or they're going to be an actor or a rock star or author or, or entrepreneur or something. They're going to they're going to hit it big and then they're going to be <laughs> delivered to this good life. And then they get delivered to the good life and not only are they not better, they're worse. And then and then you you have to try to keep that up and it's like you're never going to can't be done. It can't be done. No. Nope. And, the, and then, you know, life gets complicated and you discover the wonderful pain-killing properties of Jack Daniels and heroin. <laughs> was that your discovery? Yes, it was my discovery. You weren't doing the coke. You were just selling the coke. Oh, I would do as much as I could get my hands on. But <laughs> Oh, you were an all-purpose all drug guy. I'm a poly abuser. Poly abuser. Is, yes. that a, is that a technical term or do you just yes, make that up? Yes, that's an industry that's uh, a terminology, yeah. So does that mean that you have to go to poly poly meetings? Or? Yes, yes, I do. For real? Yeah. All right. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. When I talk at an AA meeting, I identify as an alcoholic because that's the way we like it. Right. When I talk at an NA meeting, I identify as an addict because that's the way we like it. Do you ever like turn to somebody who's just an AA and, and be like, I'm better than you because I get to go to more meetings? I don't, but many do. Do they really? Yes. There's a weird, there's a weird kind of snobbery that goes on between NA and AA. There's this thing that, uh, like, there's like, it's a good thing it's a big tent, you know? <laughs> right. We can tolerate this kind of, um, this kind of uh, factionalism, but there, there's, there's an odd thing that goes on. Like, it, it, it's a lot of it's semantic. Like, if you talk at an AA meeting, you have to say clean or you have to say sober. But if you talk at an NA meeting, you have to say clean. Now, to me, it's they're both, you know, you metaphors ever, of the same condition. So do you ever slip up and someone's like, hey, <laughs> no, I, I ask for forgiveness in front. I just tell them I'm going to refer to powders and potions or drinks. <laughs> and I know that Sounds keeping like an Hogwarts. open mind <laughs> is a principle that we all try to live by. And I know that you won't crucify me if I. Use the wrong term. That's good to know. In case, you know. So far, so good. For me. <laughs> I've, you know, I've definitely been down the coke But thankfully, I saw my brother go down. So that I that always kept me at, uh, wise to uh, putting too much in my nose. Though I did slip a few years ago. <laughs> it's easy to do. It was a young, it was a young, it was a 21-year-old. And, you know, that's almost like a suitcase full of bills. 
Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh. Maybe even more powerful. <laughs> Both of them hit at our basic instincts. <laughs> we have our instinct for, for our pocketbook security, our, our uh, social life, and, and our sex life, you know. Uh, and it, it, now when you were in, in the Huskow, that's what they call it in jail still, right? The Huskow? Yes, yeah. The, the one thing that I was really fascinated is by that you got to study with Red Rodney, which because you didn't know how to read music before that. Well, I did oh, about did? as good as most rock guitar players, which is not very good, you know. I mean, when you first start learning music, your music teacher always tries to teach you how to read music because it's actually important. But yeah. if you're a rock you want to be a rock guitar player, then, you know, I wanted to learn how to play like Chuck Berry and I I could care less about playing uh, you know, Broadway show tunes cuz that don't get you no pussy. That's right. <laughs> and I was interested in the punani. <laughs> but because that would you say that it because then you you studied with Red Rodney, which is really yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I did to study me. with Red, and what Red taught me was uh, uh, the Berkeley uh, correspondence course that he had taken before when he had been in prison in the fifties, and he still had all the books and everything, and uh, and it was really um, he taught me about um, the. Uh, you know, standards and bebop are built on um, uh, a chord progression that we call two five one. Rock is really built on a lot of one four five. It's just ways to identify a particular pattern of chords, and um, uh, so we did a lot of um, chord spelling, where he would write out a set of chords, and you'd have to write down the the notes that make up the chord, and a lot of scales, and and we played a lot. That's that was the real thing. Is we we got a chance. We had a band together in there. We called it Street Sounds, and and I actually had a manager for the band. I had this great um, uh, uh, great Jewish gangster who was the band's manager, Nathan Cohen. Uh, Nathan's no longer with us, but. Uh, he was uh, he was friends with uh, Spiro Agnew and Marvin Mandel, and wow, he was a uh, East Coast uh, real estate operator. What it landed him in there? He Sounds like Spiro he stole, Agnew stole um, a couple million dollars worth of um, uh, real estate. He what he would do is he would he he was really a genius. I mean, had he just uh, stuck to his legitimate business, he'd have been fine. But he he would get a piece of property in uh, New York. And then he would sell that property uh, uh, in the, to someone in the mid-Atlantic states, and then he would sell it to someone again in Florida. And he kept jockeying these mortgages back and forth with in the paperwork, and you know, selling the same property two or three times to different people. That's unreal. He was he was uh, very shrewd. <laughs> I I am not shrewd in any. <laughs> That's but, so would and so you were studying pretty much jazz with Red Rock, yeah, yeah, bebop. And now because you compose film and whatnot or score film, and would do you think was did that lead to that or is that sort of a jump in sort of logic? Um, no, it did lead to it. Um, in fact, one day uh, Red and I were watching television, like the NBA playoffs or something, were on. We we're in the we we're watching TV in prison and. And uh, a Uniroyal tire commercial came on, and Red said, "Do you hear the trumpet on there?" And I said, "No, Red, I, I didn't, I didn't hear the <laughs> trumpet." He said, "Yeah, that's me." And I said, "Really?" He said, "Yeah, yeah." I said, "Wow, that's." He said, "No, no, Wayne, 
He said, someday the kind of music that you play will be used in commercials. So it's something you want to, you know, keep yourself open to. And it really kind of turned my head for the first time to think about there was a way to use my uh, musical abilities beyond playing in bands, beyond the world of, you know, touring around and making records. And uh, so in a way, yeah, there is a connection between that my time with Red and what I do for a living today. That's kind of, I mean, such an unfortunate chain of events, getting put in prison, and then that spins pretty, would you say, the rest of your life? Is that, or is that, I don't, I tend to read way too much into everything, so that's why I always have to make sure I'm not jumping in logic. Well, it, uh, no, because, it, I mean, I, I think it's, it was a pretty astute connection that you made. I mean, it's a rare time. I, hadn't, I hadn't thought of it before, but <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that was the first time I ever thought that, you know, someone like me could actually make money in commercial, like commercials for television or movies or television shows. Because from that point of, you know, from the 60s and 70s, the kind of music that I could play well wasn't used in commercials. But today, commercials are all guitar rock, you know, synthesizer, big beats. I mean, it's rock, rock and more rock. So today I'm right on time. Yeah, it's like you would I the Beach Boys were were constantly in commercials to, when I was a kid to the point where I didn't listen to them until my 30s cuz I was like I, I it kind of ruined the Beach Boys for me. But now I have then when I went back I was like, "Oh, the Beach Boys are great." I just always associated it with orange juice. <laughs> in fact, some of the I think some of the most creative music being um written today is in commercials. Um, these ad agencies, these guys are sharp, sharp, sharp young people, and they want cutting edge music. They want something that's just ahead of the curve, and um, and they and they can pay for it. It was. I mean, I have some ba friends in indie bands, and like, I mean, they were able to live off of their their shit getting stuffed into commercials. And sure. it, for them, it was like a godsend. Yep. Because they were like, fuck, I don't have to work in a burger joint. Yep. What, when we're not on tour, that we could actually focus on what we want to be focusing on. I mean, I made my living on commercials for a long time. You might have seen some of my Subway ads. I don't want to get into it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've done a lot of things in life. I don't want to intimidate you. Just because you got a bobblehead, which is, <laughs> you think you're better than everybody. I've done Subway ads. And I fucked a pillow on the man show. I succeed. Man, uh, then, you, but you, you've raised the bar. I've, I've, I've got some distance to go now. Yeah. So, uh, I, there's one thing that I've always, I guess, been, I, the story of the 68 convention, you probably get asked this a lot, but to me, I'm also growing up in Chicago, the 68 convention is sort of, I mean, it's a legendary event to begin with, but in Chicago, it's like, I know guys who are cops who are like, yeah, my dad's got a coat that he was beating up hippies in. <laughs> like, it's that kind of, and then there's the people who I admire who are actually protesting, but, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I don't, what, how did you guys end up being the only band that, because everybody pulled out because they were just terrified? No, I mean, they had sense. <laughs> <laughs> and you just were like, fuck it, we're going to... Yeah, we you were You guys just, were badasses. Well, and we were crazy. You know, we... Uh, I mean, we played for um, bad police uh, behavior before. And we knew that almost, at least in those days, anytime there was a large gathering of people um, outdoors, and if it got heated, 
Um, as soon as we stopped playing, there would be a riot. It happened a couple times in Detroit. We had seen it. And uh, we kind of figured, knowing the reputation of the Chicago Police Department and the kind of tension that was surrounding um, that event and kind of the, the atmosphere in the country. I mean, the country was very polarized in those days. On a, and, you know, I mean, you could say we're polarized today, but it was at a pitch, at a level that um, is, is um, you can't, you, you can't, unless you were there, you, you can't know how heated it was. I mean, it was physical. It was something you could feel. And, you know, violence was palpable. I mean, Martin Luther King had been assassinated. Kennedy had been assassinated. Malcolm X had been assassinated. Assassination was in the air. You know, it was the killing season. And nobody really understood it. And nobody really knew how far it could all go. You know, 50,000 young Americans died in the Vietnam War. And so the idea that um, angry young people were going to take to the streets in Chicago and we knew that the Chicago Police Department were, were going to re react violently. That wasn't unusual. I mean, we just figured that's the way it, that's the way it is. And, you know, we, we felt like we I felt like my band, the MC5, was part of of what was happening. You know, we, we were players in the in the big picture of things. We had we had a voice. We were taking a stand and um, and I was ambitious, you know. I wanted to be in the middle of everything. I wanted people to know who I was and what I did and what what the band was doing. So, um, yeah, we went and, and we played, and we were the only band to show up. And who was they supposed to play? Uh, well, I as I remember, um, most of the San Francisco bands said they were going to come. The Dead. Um, Fucking pussies, by the way. I, I, yeah, I, I don't remember which, you know, if it was the Jefferson Airplane or fucking pussies or the, yeah, the Dead or Big Brother and the Holding Company or, um, but you know, I, 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 I was kind of snotty about him for a long time and I would kind of badmouth them all. But those, you know? the hippie bands from the San Francisco? Yeah, but you know, now I look at it and I think, well, they actually had more sense. <laughs> 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 they had a degree of wisdom that I, I wasn't capable of, uh, <laughs> of, uh, of uh, embracing in those days. Did so. you get in the middle of the riots though? I mean, because it. Oh hell no! We played, we played, and the minute we finished our set, we threw our shit in the truck and got our ass back to Detroit as fast <laughs> as possible. Because we knew the shit was going to hit the fan. I mean, while we were playing, the police were, there were. Um, plainclothes provocateurs in the crowd. You could see these guys with short hair um, beating up hippies. You know, there'd be two or three of them over here and then another fight would break out over there. Because they were trying to start a riot? Yeah, just provoking everybody. And the Chicago police were driving their motorcycles through the crowd at speed, you know, uh, just, just harassing. And the police department had a helicopter that they brought down on top of us while we were playing. <laughs> Maybe they were just fans. They wanted a good. <laughs> well, actually, I looked at it like I thought the sound of the helicopter fit perfect with the feedback of my guitar <laughs> to, to make one really beautiful expression of uh, or like a whole agiprop theater piece. <laughs> 
Did it really go that way? Yeah. That's amazing. I, I, <clears throat> I saw the, the artistic value of it. <laughs> what were the fucking cops thinking? Like, we'll start a riot and it'll make the hippies look bad? Like, I don't understand what their logic was. Because it the probably wouldn't to, have... To kick ass. They just want to... Show, to show who's running things in Chicago. And it's not going to be all these long-haired kids from all over the country. What it's going to be the Chicago de- Police Department. What a terrible fucking idea. <laughs> I mean, Daly was, Daly was a huge piece of shit, as everybody knows. My father, though, loved him. My father was so delusional, he, he stated that it was never a cloudy or rainy day on St. Patrick's Day when Daly was mayor. He honestly believed that. He also voted for Reagan so he could go double fuck himself. Well, there, there seems to be a – you can divide the American psyche up into one kind of way of thinking that if you um, obey the rules, if you follow the system, the system will protect you. You know, they, it's group identification. They, uh, and then there's another part of the American psyche that kind of – uh, embraces diversity and is more nurturing and, you know, try different things. I don't think you can say that you can't put a, a, a moral value on one over the other. I just think that's how it breaks down. That, And you could say that the, the people that follow the rules tend to be Republican. <laughs> and the ones that, you know, like celebrate diversity tend to be progressive uh, liberals, you know, Democrats. Um, not always. There's some overlap there, but uh, it's just. Um, I want. I think that. I mean, I was trying to think of like what makes someone one or the other, and it's like. I mean, even as a child, I would listen to my family talk, and you know, there were some racists in my family, <laughs> so some words were said now and again. But I remember like the people saying, and I'm as a kid just being like, this doesn't make any fucking sense to me. Mm-hmm. And it's like we don't even know any black people, so how can you hate? Uh, They're not even in the neighborhood at all, or the next neighborhood. It was, and then you know my brother who was flagrantly saying the n word still tosses it about. And it was modeled for him. Listen, I had a stepfather who was from the south, who was a unabashed racist, and and I grew up in Detroit, which has been a a uh, multicultural city. From forever. Yeah. And my first memories as a little, as a child in school were that I played with kids that were all different colors. I mean, that was, that's just how the world was for me. And then this guy comes into our family and, and he's talking about, I mean, he would say things that I would just, I was just aghast. Like, how can he, like that stuff's like Neanderthal, you know, like. Good God. <laughs> it's, it's it's astounding that it's even like what we were talking, joking about, or I was joking about Arizona. It's like that it's still like this. Well, yeah. Small minded, just like it's illegal. Get them out. It's like it's uh, so absurd to me, obviously. Well, there, there seems to be a, a powerful group of Americans, usually uh, old white men, who have an idea of what. America was at one point in their life, somewhere in the 50s, when it never was that, but it's the idea that they, it's their memory of what America was. And they're willing to do anything to try to, to hang on to that. Fortunately, they'll die soon. But yes. because that's not America, it's like the NRA. 
Like, who are the the people in the NRA? These guys that go to gun shows and they all sit around with their rocket launchers and you know their hand grenades and uh, and they're ready to fight it out because they have this idea of America as being this place that's all white and very conservative. Although it was ne- America was never all white, but that's the way they remember it, and they're trying to hold on to this idea, and it's a dying. Um, stereotype of an of America that never really existed and really doesn't exist now. I mean, America is there's there's more Latins in America than there are white people today. You know, the 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 America that elected Barack Obama, young people, all their friends are Asian and gay and black and Puerto Rican, and they listen to hip hop. I mean, they live in a multicultural America. But these guys, they're powerful white men usually, and they're holding on to it. You know, John Boehner and Eric Cantor and and McConnell and these guys, they're holding on to something that doesn't exist anymore. I feel it's like they're sort of their last last push. Yep. Because for months I was baffled. I was like, who the fuck? Like the Republicans, who are you talking to? (laughs) Like, who are you talking? And all this anti-gay, like all the anti-gay stuff, like I listen to it's Almost like it, not almost. It's like George Wallace when he was. I mean, it's the exact yeah. same. Yeah. And the weird thing is, there's a lot of. I got into an argument with a, a liberal guy who was like, Well, I'm educated. Because when Obama kind of came halfway, like he was like, Personally, I'm, and I was like, mm-hmm. Go fuck yourself. You should go all the way and yeah. make it a political thing. Because mm-hmm. we're at the point where that needs to happen. And this guy was like, Well, he's got to play. And I'm like, Someone needs to just stand up mm-hmm. and say, Fuck yourselves. Mm-hmm. But. That's the I got off on a tangent. No, no, no. But it is. It's no, just, you're raising a good point, and 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 Obama is, is acquiescing to this group of of older, powerful white men who are trying to hold on to this old idea, and they are powerful. I mean, the you know the Dick Armies and the the uh, Karl Roves, uh, the the Koch brothers. Um, these these people wield a lot of uh, economic and political power in America, and. Uh, I don't know if he would really lose that much footing if he was like, and politically, I'm pro-gay marriage. Well, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't. He he he, fi- he finally um, stepped up, and it's like a non-issue. It went away. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. There's there's a few more issues I wish would go away. I mean, <laughs> I'd like to see America get out of its adolescence and actually grow into adulthood. That's a great. <laughs> we are. We're a bunch of teenagers still. I mean, you go to Europe, you know, you see women's breasts in ads on television. It's like, yeah, uh-huh, whatever. Yeah, great, beautiful woman, great, whatever. It's like, here, ah, a breast! Ah! <laughs> I worked in Vegas for a while, and then I would walk around the showrooms, and it'd be like, topless show. I was like, are we still fucking 12? Like, people are paying hundreds of dollars to see a bunch of women just prance around with with no with their boobies out and it's like we've seen boobies already like just because they got feather hats on suddenly it's they're more a uh, uh, booby appealing the victorian consequences hit, hit us harder than it did the british <laughs> yeah I, I, uh, at least they got over it or at least they enjoy it anyway <laughs> yeah i call the puritanicals the first cock blockers yep exactly <laughs> So and I feel like we're totally going backwards in time, but like, how old were you when the MC5 started? Because you guys were like super. Were you teenagers? Um, well, I started my 
first band, I guess I was about 13, and I was about, I was 14 when I, when I rounded up the guys that turned out to be the MC5. So we were a band by the time I was 16, and uh, by the time I was 19, I had achieved everything I had set out to do in my life. Jesus. <laughs> you, had already, so that's, you were 19 when the first record came out? Or? Yeah, or before. I mean, we were already hugely popular in Detroit, and, and um, you know, here I was. I was a professional musician. I could, I could make a living pl- playing music. I had um, recognition in the community. I was getting all the sex I could handle. <laughs> I was high all the time. I, I had achieved everything I'd set out to do I, if that by happened, the time I was 19. I would have before lost I made an album. Before I would have lost my mind. Oh, I did. I lost it. I'm still looking for it. <laughs> Maybe it's over there on Fairfax and Willoughby. I, I, I think it is. And take a look. And how did? Because how did the White Panther? Were you a, a, one of the founding members of the White Panther mm-hmm. Party? Mm-hmm. It was you, and was it John Sinclair also who? John started? Sinclair and a, a guy named uh, Pun Plamondon. We uh, Pun was in jail, and he read in the Black Panther newspaper that Huey Newton said there needed to be a group in the white community, a white panther group, that did parallel work to the Black Panthers. Um, And uh, we said, that's us. It was a way to express our frustration with the slow pace of change. We wanted shit to change faster, like young people are known to do. (laughs) We were in a hurry. And uh, we admired the Black Panthers, and uh, so we tried to emulate them. And we, we I really liked the way they dressed. They I, were I fucking thought badass the black leather looking. jackets, the sunglasses, the berets. I think it was a nice look. That was a, that was a cool look. Did you did you guys sport guns as well? And we had guns as well. Yes. Because when you're doing a lot of drugs, you want to have guns around. Keeps it interesting. That's what I like reading about the Black Panthers and stuff. Driving around with guns, I'm like. I, I would be accidentally shooting shit off all the time. I mean, I, I'm, they were a lot cooler than me. <laughs> but Well, as it turns out, they weren't. Um, and we know now historically that, um, that, that uh, even though they had a, a, a veneer of um, a kind of a Marxist self-determination rhetoric that surrounded their activities, and many people associated with the Panthers were completely committed and sincere in their desire to help their community and and uh, improve things, uh, there was a core element that were just gangsters. And uh, uh, so, you know, what, 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 what we admired from a distance turned out to be not exactly as advertised. Do any of them acknowledge that these days or is that still kind of because a lot of the stuff i've read i've never you actually hit me to that the other day and i was like i had little ideas and i did wonder i was like how the fuck are these guys funding this shit <laughs> like back in the early days i was like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah by robbing <laughs> <laughs> arm robbery i think is what it's called <laughs> uh i gotta try that just to, you know. It was an organizing uh, technique, yeah. Yeah, I'm not good at organizing, so. And, and are you still in touch with any of those guys, or is it? 
Uh, you know, I run into, uh, I see uh, Bobby Seal from time to time. Is he in Los he, Angeles? Uh, no, he was down, it was a couple of years ago now, uh, John Sinclair was in town. And John was doing, I was doing some gigs and I was having John as my special guest. And Bobby Seal happened to be in town and he came and uh, uh, David Hilliard. Um, uh, so, you know, they, I mean... Panthers still have 30, I think around 30 members in prison in, um, from offenses of back then. You know, the state of California, when they give you a life sentence or a life without parole sentence, they're not joking. Yeah, you were saying These that. guys have been locked up a long time. You were saying that before we started recording that there's even organizations of people inside the prison who, about the death, the death penalty, you, like some people... And it's $50,000 a year. Well, to, to keep someone locked up in prison in the state of California is about $48,000, $49,000 a year. Um, that's for someone that's relatively healthy. Um, California's uh, prison building boom um, is such a disaster. Uh, in, in, not only California, but California is a great example of of what I think is the greatest failure of social policy in America's domestic history. The, uh, the prison, prison, prison building, uh, and, uh, filling prisons up with American citizens is, has gone on unabated for 30 years to the, to the point now where we have two and a half million people in prison and we, we can't afford it. I mean, we can't afford it from a human perspective, because for every person that's in prison, um, that uh, destroys his whole family too. You know, he has a, a, a wife, children, a, a husband, uh, relatives, people that depend on him. He's not in the economy anymore. Um, and he's effectively excluded from the economy when he gets out. And most prisoners will be released. 95% of the people in prison uh, in America are going to be released one day. And uh, we do nothing to prepare them to return. And we have no arrangements made for um, reentry, uh, job training, support system. Uh, there's none of that going, like there's very little of that going on? in or no? Almost none. There, there's been no emphasis on it. The emphasis has been on stronger laws, build more prisons, lock more people up. That retribution and revenge is the is the core ideal of our uh, uh, corrections philosophy. Uh, uh, Thirty years ago, America abandoned rehabilitation as a as a corrections goal. And the when I was locked up, I caught the end of it, uh, and they said the new word was accountability. That's all they're interested in is accountability for, for your actions that brought yeah. you to prison. You're, yeah, you're going, you're going to, uh, you're going to serve uh, your time, and uh, like here in California, that's when they came up with the determinate sentence. So if the judge gives you ten years, it doesn't matter what you do during those ten years. It doesn't matter if you go to therapy, if you take college classes, if you learn a skill. If you learn, if you found a way to cure cancer, it doesn't matter because you're going to do all 10 years. So there's no incentive 
to rehabilitate. There's no incentive to change for the better. Yeah, and after 10 years of living in that lifestyle, transitioning out, is it's got to be maddening. Even if you want to live a life in in the outside world, after 10 years of prison, you're probably what you've dealt with there's no there's no way that's why i mean you know a lot of people end up back in there it's a, i mean because they don't know how to fucking adjust correct correct you 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 take someone from a world of, of bitterness and defeat racism violence and inculcate them in that world to the degree that they know how to survive for a decade or more and then just give them two hundred dollars and drop them on the street. That's what they give you. They give you two hundred dollars, yep. and then you're just like, they're like, see, see you later. Yep. And God knows everybody in a tough economy that's hardly hiring as it is is going to want to hire a guy right out of prison. <laughs> Ain't going to work. In fact, there, there's a movement afoot. It's called uh, erase the box. There's a box on a lot of employment forms. You check this if you're a, fe- a convicted felon, and. If you've checked that box, you're not getting that job. So the idea is you should take that that box off of the forms. It sh- shouldn't be a, a – it's an unfair discrimination. Well, I mean, if technically, if you're re- – re- I can't say it suddenly. If you're out of prison and you're rehabbed, <laughs> I couldn't get the other one word out, that – I mean, you, it should be sort of wiped away anyway because you're re- well, you've, rehabilitated. You've paid your I price. You've, you've paid your you've paid the penalty. Right. I mean, I, I you know, Our, you're sent to prison as punishment, not for punishment, and um, that distinction gets lost a lot. You know that that. Uh, uh, you know, you, you the the punishment in, in our quote civilized view is that you're you lose your liberty, you lose your freedom, you you can't come and go as you please, you can't do many of the things that you can do if you haven't violated society's rules. Um, that's the punishment. Time, time is the punishment. Um, but. Uh, in the last thirty years, they've they've uh, expanded that idea. I mean, they've uh, they to lock up more and more people, to give more and more people more and more time. Um, that means that they can't afford um, school, they can't afford therapy, they can't afford job training, they can't afford uh, rehabilitation services. Uh, half the people in California's prisons can't read. <laughs> that would be a start, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe do something about that. But we can't afford it. You can't afford to have um, two hundred thousand people in prison at fifty thousand dollars each. And you were saying that if there's a if they have a life sentence, and even if they're in a coma, they keep them in prison opposed to releasing them. Yep. If you're if you are in a wheelchair, sick, on death's door, they won't release you. That's that's great. It, it's unbelievable. Now, how much of this, how much, how many of the prisons are privatized? Is there, I mean, there's a number of prisons that are privatized. Is that correct? There is a move uh, it's, uh, to, uh, to prisons, for-profit prisons. Um, in some states, 
prison guard unions have been able to keep them at a minimum. Here in California, the prison guards union is a very, very powerful political force. Second most powerful political entity in the state after the teachers union. And you can't fart in Sacramento without the permission <laughs> of the guards union. Um, and they've been able to keep uh, private prisons to a minimum in California. Other states, um, not so much. In I think it's in Mississippi, they've they're allowing local sheriffs to build their own for-profit prisons. That's where, yes, it's a return to convict leasing. Um, the local sheriff can build his own prison and the state will pay him to keep it full of prisoners. So he's both the source and the recipient of the business. He can go out, lock people up, and he gets paid to lock pe more people and then, up. I mean, hypothetically, he could say, oh, that guy was in prison. He did this and that and this. We got to keep him in there longer. Keep giving me that money. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a See, great system. Once again, from we... the capitalist <laughs> point of view, it's perfect. Yes. <laughs> Do you want to open up a prison? Maybe it's a you growth industry. <laughs> now and then, this all can go back to your your charity because because if they're not offering rehabilitation, what the fuck is my problem with that word? Uh, I turn into mush mouth when I try to say it. <laughs> but. So you brushed your teeth, can't do a thing with them. <laughs> but so you're offering actually a way to help these prisoners through your through your charity and to help, which obviously it doesn't sound like they're getting a lot of on the inside. Well, yeah, we're, I mean, we're, we're, we're doing something. I mean, whatever, you know, we're a small group and uh, and, uh, you know, in the, in the, when you face the problem and. In total, it's barely a drop in the bucket, but um, I think it's um, each person can make a difference. And, and you know, as an ex-offender, um, you know, going to prison changes you and you never you never get unchanged. It's, uh, you know, I mean, and so for me, like I still have one foot in prison and, and that's been 30 years ago for me. And, but uh, it's still part of who I am. And, uh, and I'm in music and I thought, well, maybe I could, I have one foot in music and one foot in prison. Maybe I could be a bridge, you know, to, uh, to bring, bring, uh, music back into the prisons and, and, uh, and, uh, really try to send a message to uh, people in prison that, not all of us believe in locking you up and throwing away the key. Not of all. Not all of us um, see you see you people see the people in prison as as you know, eyeball tattooed, head chopping maniacs <laughs> like like Fox News would portray them. You know, uh, uh, if 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 you ever if you ever visited a prison and talked to people in prison, you find out. They're just people, just like you and me. They're just, did they make a mistake? Hell yes. A, a small percentage of them did something really bad, really violent. But most of them are just people. They're just guys like you would run into. They're just women that you would know, like people in your own family. They're not monsters. They're just people. They made mistakes. And if we don't do something to, to change them for the better while we have them, then they're going to change for the worse. I mean, 
in a way, what we're doing is crime prevention, <laughs> you know, because um, these sentences, th this whole get tough on crime, it, it wasn't smart. They didn't think it through. And what they ended up doing is creating a system that makes people that are already um, inclined to do wrong, do wrong worse. I mean, prison is crime school. And the bitterness and the defeat that people suffer in prison, the, 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 the idea that the prison continually reminds you that you are worthless, that you have no value, um, that damages people and it, and it makes them worse. And so we end up with a situation where locking all these people up didn't make us safer. It made us less safe because they're all going to come out. They're all going to come out and they're not going to be able to get jobs now because there's no money left for, for reentry programs. There's no money left for rehabilitation programs. So they get worse. And we all pay the price now because, because some politician got elected or, or some um, very slick sheriff or corporate leader or government leader found a way to make money on human misery. That's uh, well. I guess we'll just end there. <laughs> but uh, that is. I and mean, these, this is the good news. <laughs> but uh, also with uh, so uh, it's uh, jailguitardoors.org is mm -hmm. where people and pe people can go there. They can donate. There's the YouTube videos on there, which I watched. And some of them are very. I was very moved by. Uh, and you talked to in some of those. You're talking to prisoners and stuff, and seeing them sing along, and it's it's. It's great. It's yeah, it's really great touching. Stuff. We have we have we have a good time with, you know. Listen, prisoners are not naive people. And you can go in and you can talk about some truth with prisoners. And um um and sometimes I feel like they're the only people that understand what I'm trying to say, you know. <laughs> um and uh and they're grateful that to to hear a message that somebody hears them, that somebody cares that they're in there. And, and really, that's the message that um, these guitars that we give them represent. You know, the people that, that send us money to pay for these guitars are sending a message. And the message is that we know you want to change for the better. We know, we expect more of you. We expect you to step up. We expect you to do what you have to do to figure out how to come back, rejoin us in the world, rejoin your friends and family, and be part of the world. You know, uh, if you accept, these guitars are a challenge. They're not gifts. We don't give the guitars as gifts. They're a challenge. If you accept the challenge, then it's on you to step up, you know, to you use this guitar. A guitar can not only be the key to your unlocking your cell, it can be the key to unlocking the rest of your life. You know, it's a new way to process your problems. It's a way to think about things and, and, and uh, reflect on things that maybe before you would, you would, you would react. Right. Well, so pick up your guitar and <laughs> strum for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> Write a song about it. Write a song about it. Then think it over. See if it's still such a good idea, you know. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Wayne. I you greatly... are so welcome. It's, it's an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Uh, 
if you're available, come July 12th to the Echoplex for the uh, the benefit concert. I think it's going to be really amazing. And uh, you'll get to see me talk in front of a lot of people. And uh, go to jailguitardoors.org, buy some merchandise, watch the YouTube videos. They're really moving, and they they sort of inspired me to want to be a bigger part of this organization. And, and so I started to volunteer for them. Uh, follow me on Twitter, Matt underscore Dwyer on the Twitter there. And uh, you can email me at conversationswiththedwyer at, at gmail. And uh, go to feralaudio.com, listen to the other shows like uh, Please Be My Girlfriend. It's a really great show. Uh, They make me laugh, and uh, I'm constantly saying to people, please be my girlfriend. This has been Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Thank you for listening. Power to the people. National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.